just going to move this out of the way before I trip over it. Um, I read an article the other day which was titled Desperately Seeking Happiness. And the point of the article was summed up in the opening line. And it was this, what does it mean to be happy? In trying to answer the question, the writer continued, it is the most elusive of questions and permeates much of our daily lives. While we toil away, we secretly pray for happiness. The writer continued, recently, a science of happiness has cropped up in the field of psychology. I want to be a doctor of happiness. Wouldn't that be an awesome doctorate to have, to be a doctor of happiness? And uh, the good scientists, as they do, they came up with a definition of happiness, and it is. It is the ability to sustain an overall sense of well-being over time. However, and you knew there'd be a however, the capacity to generate and maintain well-being while coping with daily challenges requires a certain amount of emotional flexibility. Um, I'm hoping there's a few doctors or psychologists or scientists who could tell me what that means. Because it seems to me it kind of says, if you want to be happy, think happy thoughts. And if you're going through a tough time, think happier thoughts and everything will be okay. As long as you're flexible in your emotions. Which I guess is what emotions are, aren't they? Flexible. So I'm not entirely certain what what they've come up with. But it seems we are desperate to be happy. And the answer is to self-generate and self-maintain well-being. The trouble is that life throws us curveballs. Or in cricketing analogy, they bowl us a googly. And self-generated happy thoughts will not cut it when we face unexpected job loss. or a a significant medical diagnosis, or the realities of disease, disability, and death. The writer and pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, Now the whole world is seeking after happiness. That is the great motive behind every act and ambition, behind all work and all striving and effort. Everything is designed for happiness. But the great tragedy of the world is that, though it gives itself Uh, to seek for happiness, it never seems to be able to find it. The kind of happiness that is offered by the happy scientists is really hard work and is so dependent upon our circumstances and situations. It is a poor reflection of the happiness or blessedness that Jesus talks about here in the Sermon on the Mount. If the goal of life is the desperate pursuit of happiness for happiness' sake, then we are bound to fail. If the purpose of life is the pursuit of happiness for happiness' sake, then we are bound to fail. Jesus, on the other hand, describes a happiness that is found in something deeper than just a self-generated emotion that maintains well-being as long as things are going well. His radically different definition of the blessed life is not the pursuit of happiness for happiness' sake. It is the pursuit of God that leaves us wanting more. It is the pursuit of God that sees us filled and yet wanting to be filled again and again and again. This is the true blessed life. Over the last couple of Sundays, we've heard that we are blessed when we understand our spiritual poverty. Because in doing so, we understand our true nature and the deep love that God has for us. 
despite that nature. Our poverty becomes incomparable riches as we recognize that having a right relationship with God is not based upon our own efforts or our own worthiness, but on Jesus' death in our place upon the cross. Our new nature now is, is as an inhabitant of the kingdom of heaven. Sons and daughters of the King of Kings, co-heirs with Christ of his kingdom and recipients of eternity. That is who you are this morning if you love Jesus and are following him. We are blessed when we mourn over the sin which separates us from our loving Father. As we realize and rejoice in the lengths Jesus went to to deal with the sin that causes that separation. We are truly comforted when we realize that he has paid the price that we should have paid. When he has died the death that we should have died. When he has gone ahead to prepare a place for us. And that he now pleads our cause in heaven. We are blessed. And we are truly blessed when we meekly and humbly approach our almighty God with thankful hearts. Recognizing that we deserve judgment from our God who we have offended by our sin, but instead are shown mercy and grace and are given an inheritance which never fades and is for today and tomorrow for eternity. This is the result of pursuing God, blessedness, and it cannot be self-generated nor self-maintained. It is all from God. If it's impossible to find true blessedness or happiness outside of a relationship with God, then surely those of us who have tasted and seen that God is good should be fulfilled. We should be happy. In fact, we should be the happiest of all people because if all of our lives were stripped away, all of our possessions, all of the people around us, everything was stripped away from us, we would still be the richest people in the world. Because of our relationship with God our Father through Jesus our Son, His Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. The problem is that as followers of Jesus, we still have a diet of self-centeredness, an appetite for self-fulfillment, for the promise of self-satisfaction. And that is where we come to this morning to counter the appetite for self-centeredness. Jesus remedies the problem by prescribing a new diet where we hunger and thirst for righteousness. This hunger and thirst will lead us with the Apostle Paul to say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. For us to experience that sort of fulfillment, which is the promise Jesus makes to those who truly hunger and thirst after him, we need to develop a better diet. We need to have a better appetite. And we need to do this for a better promise. I was looking up on Wikipedia the definition of a diet. It is the sum of food and drink that people habitually consume. And the same article lists all the different diets in the world. And I'm not going to go through them because there were hundreds, hundreds of diets. But I did like some of them. I did like my personal favorite, the seafood diet. I see food and I eat it. Thank you very much. I'm here all week. And um, I did particularly like also the Kangatarian diet. Anybody want to think what that involves? It's from Australia. 
Yes, it's a vegetarian diet which is made better with kangaroo meat. Yummy. There's the cabbage soup diet. You lose weight in, in exactly the same proportion to the amount of friends you lose when you gather around them while you're on the diet. And finally, this was my favourite, the Paleolithic diet, wherein you eat food eaten by humans during the Paleolithic period and comes with your own club and hunting spear. But serious, um, it is clear that what we eat affects us. Eat the wrong foods and it will reduce our effectiveness to survive. And at worst, it will kill us. Sometimes it's the subtle ingredients of our diets which are the problem. If the greatest need for our souls is a right relationship with God, then the greatest danger is whatever keeps us away from God. For those not yet following Jesus, what keeps you away from God is a diet of sin. It's insatiable. It's an addiction. And the only way to break it is to replace that desire with a greater one. That is what Jesus offers when he says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. An addiction is heavy and wearying, and it will leave you tired, broken. It will never satisfy. But following Jesus can and will satisfy. It is his promise, cast iron guarantee. But the follower of Jesus also needs to be on a diet. A diet which keeps us spiritually healthy, morally strong, and walking in step with the Spirit of God. To be on this diet will mean sacrifice as we make healthier choices. Like choosing to spend time with God's people in the prayer meeting instead of watching junk TV. It will need self-control as we fight the desire to fill up on things that hinder our growth and damage our relationship with God and choose instead opportunities to show love for God and love for others. We will need to trust our dietitian who knows exactly what we need to flourish and to grow. An extra challenge to those who follow Jesus is the need to make sure that we do not turn a good God-given thing into God itself. The writer and pastor John Piper in his book, A Hunger for God, writes, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime-time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. Piper is talking to you and me, to those who are followers of Jesus. For too many of us, our appetite for God has been taken away by a diet of things that will ultimately fade and die. And even when those things on the face of it are good, if they're replacing a desire for God and him alone, we will kill our desire for him. Jesus says our hunger and thirst must be for righteousness. I wish I could say that that was my daily focus. That was my daily diet. But there are so many distractions and oftentimes they are good. Family, friends, social life food and drink, yes, even church. These are all good things given by a loving Father who knows what we need and delights to supply our needs abundantly, but it's me who makes them a little God, an idol 
which draws me away from my creator and demands my time, my resources, my energy, my life. And all that's left is the scraps. I discovered an app on my phone that on a weekly basis tells me how much time I spend on it. That's a scary bit of information. When it comes through every week, it tells me how many hours I've been on my phone. But imagine for a minute an app which tells you how much time you spent seeking after righteousness on a day-by-day basis. I wonder what the results would be. Our natural desire for selfishness is fed by a diet of self-pleasing, self-satisfying, self-fulfillment. This diet will kill our faith, blunt our desire for God, and will result in little growth and no fruit. Jesus says that to be truly happy, to experience true blessedness, comes from a diet of righteousness. Now, righteousness, simply put, though it's anything but simple, is our right standing before God that is given to us by God through the death and resurrection of Jesus that covers over our sins and creates a desire for holiness. It's not our own righteousness, which is like filthy rags. It's the righteousness from heaven. And if we want to thrive in this life, we need to change our diet to a diet of righteousness. As Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, a diet of righteousness is the supreme desire in life to know God and to be in fellowship with him, to walk with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the light. The man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is the man who longs for that above everything else. And in the end, that is nothing but a hunger and thirst to be like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Is that you this morning? Is your hunger and thirst, is your supreme desire in life to know God and to be in fellowship with him, to walk with God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit in the light? I want my life to be like that. I want uh, to be able to feed, as the Lord Jesus himself calls himself, on the bread of life. In John's Gospel, The Lord Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And in John 37, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That is the call to each one of us this morning to feed on the bread of life and to drink the water that we will never go thirsty of again. If we seek to fill up on anything else, it will blunt our desires and it will kill our faith. Because it's empty calories. It will ruin our relationship with God. I want that diet. I want the diet of bread of life. I want the diet of living water. And it can only be found when I desire Jesus more than the things of this world. It can only come about when I desire Jesus more than the things of this world. Of course, changing our diet is one thing. But if we have no diet, if we have no appetite for it, we will never see the results. Once our diet has changed, we need a better appetite. I think my appetite is quite good. But since becoming a dog owner, and I'm sorry, I was going to bring a visible representation up with me this morning, but we've left Edna at home. 
is that since becoming a dog owner of a Labrador, I've learned a lot about labs. Firstly, they can hold a stare longer than anything else in creation if it means you finally cave in and you give them a treat. Secondly, they will eat anything. This is not good. One of my first walks with Edna up at Redburn Country Park, she disappeared off into a hedge and came out with something furry. It had to tail, that's all I'm saying. And then proceeded as I tried to get her to leave it, she proceeded to eat it. Yeah, and then she bathed it up about an hour later. And thirdly, and what we didn't know, and this is, this is uh, uh, genetically, apparently a quarter of all Labradors have this, is that genetically, Labradors have no full setting when it comes to food intake. They are constantly hungry. They never, ever experience being full. And we didn't appreciate this until we, we learned from the charity, that um, because she's a hearing dog, we learned from the charity that one of her siblings got into the food store at the hearing dog's charity and ate one of the big bags of food and was found in a food coma sometime later. He's doing okay now. He's working and he's survived. But that's the thing with Labradors. They don't know when they are full. They just keep eating. The thing is, when it comes to spiritual food, food, I wish I had no sense of being full. My trouble is that spiritually speaking, I nibble and sip at the things of God. I so often don't hunger and thirst for them. I want to have a healthy spiritual appetite, but I too often gorge on things which are empty of anything good. Or I starve myself of the things that I need to grow as a believer. Jesus calls to his disciples is that we must have an appetite which is constantly hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now it's difficult for us to understand the urgency of this, but to Jesus' followers in first century Palestine, hunger and thirst was a real reality. In first century Palestine, there was regular droughts and regular famines. And other than the, the elite, people knew what it was like to go without, to truly be starving, to truly be thirsty beyond compare. Jesus' call is to know a spiritual hunger and thirst for the things of God, which is like the intense longing for food and water in a famine or a drought. Now we get a sense of this kind of hunger and thirst um, from the Psalms. King David, when he wrote Psalm 63, wrote, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek for you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Or the psalmist wrote in Psalm 42, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for you, the living God. And in Psalm 143, verse 6, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. The psalmists capture a real sense of what it means to hunger and thirst. It is a painful longing to be satisfied, a gut-clenching, never-ending longing. 
The expectation of Jesus is that his followers will know the same intense longing for him and his way as the psalmist wrote of hunger and thirst. Jesus doesn't call us to a polite, genteel nibble at a canopy, but a desperate hunger for righteousness and a dry-throated search for living water, both of which can only be met by him. The intensity of this hungering and thirsting for God cannot be summoned up by our own effort, nor by good works, nor by pleasant feelings of our own righteousness, nor by rule-keeping religion. It can only be developed as we spend time in the presence of our Master, as we feed on his word, and as we trust him as we walk along beside him through life. Keeping faith with him on the mountaintops as we delight in his presence and in his goodness. And as we trust him in the dark valleys of despair when all seems dark. Growing in faith as we submit our will to him. And just like him, as we look at our lives... Say like him in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. This type of relationship develops a healthy appetite for Jesus and his way. And it cannot be achieved by filling up on junk food or trying to live on air and mist. And our appetites dictate the direction of our lives. If our appetite is focused on us, then the pursuit of happiness outside of God, whether through a desire for possessions or power or some other person, or even the good things that God gives us, if that's anything other than the all-consuming fulfillment that is found in Jesus, we will become too full to enjoy the spiritual food that is set before us. If our hunger for Jesus and his kingdom is anything other than a deep, unfulfilled hunger and thirst, it is either because our diet is wrong or because we have, as John Piper puts it, nibbled so long at the table of the world that our souls are stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. The call to develop an appetite which has the intensity of hunger and thirsty does not make sense to people outside of the church. And sadly, there is also a lack of urgency for this necessity among us. We are consummate consumers. We love our comfort. We dislike sacrifice. We choose the easy way. Perhaps it's because we are too easily satisfied with things that fade and pass away and rust into nothingness. You may remember a time when you first became a follower of Jesus when you couldn't get enough of him. When you couldn't get enough of his word. You were joyously desperate for the things of God. You cared about the world and its spiritual famine. You welcomed opportunities for self-sacrifice and were willing to do anything for the kingdom. Just for the joy of showing your love and commitment to the one who bled and died for you. But life and time has blunted your desires. And the realities of life took over and your hunger ceased. Now you're content 
with a life of limited devotion and Sunday snacking. But here's the promise. You can find that spiritual hunger again. You can find that spiritual hunger again. How? By falling in love with Jesus again. By falling in love with Jesus again. Ponder with wonder the cost of your salvation. Of our salvation. Consider this Jesus who for our sakes God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Consider this Jesus who went ahead of you, who pleads your case in heaven, who bought your, carried your pain, who bought your sin at the cost of his life. Consider this Jesus and fall in love with him again. Your appetite will change. Changing your desire, diet is hard, but the results are great. It's especially hard when you do it on your own because we're so easily tempted by unhealthy food and easily convinced it's too hard to change. But together, through fixing our eyes upon Jesus, by encouraging one another and holding one another to account, we can see our appetites change to a hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are called to walk in step with the Spirit together so that the fruit in our lives multiplies. We get to walk through this life together in the power of the Spirit to see strongholds fall. Anybody here this morning want to see strongholds fall? A better diet produces a better appetite which produces a better promise. And that better promise is this. You will be filled. You will be filled. The promise is made by the King of Kings. It is cast iron, guaranteed. You will be filled. He says, eat right and you will be filled. There is nothing in this world which will fill you like the promises of Jesus. Helen Lemel expressed this so well when she wrote, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That is the promise to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The things of this world which seem so filling will fade and grow dim because you will be filled by a desire that can only be satisfied by looking in Jesus' wonderful face. Perhaps you don't feel like that this morning. You're not hungry and thirsting for righteousness. And that is why you're missing out on the promise. Perhaps you are seeking happiness for happiness sake. Instead of seeking happiness in God alone. If you're wondering why you have this constant desire that doesn't seem to be met. Why your life seems empty. Why you just don't seem to be living that Christian life which so many of the book writers write about. Perhaps it's your diet. Perhaps it's your appetite while you're missing out on the promise. Perhaps you're desperately seeking happiness, but in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. 
If you're struggling with something which is holding you back, which is an anchor, which is replacing a godly desire for God, I don't know what it is. Perhaps it's work. Perhaps it's family. Perhaps it's pornography. Perhaps it's drink or drugs. Perhaps it's an addiction to food. Perhaps it's an addiction to something else. In this world, we will have trouble. That's what we are told. We are not protected. We're not inoculated against trouble in this world. And if you are struggling because you are held captive to something which is replacing your desire for God, can I just give you some encouragement this morning? Please come and speak to someone. Let's start praying for you. Let's walk with you through the dark valley that you're going through. And let's hold on to a promise. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. You are no longer a slave to sin. If you can capture that and hold it, hold it in your heart and pray it to yourself and then find someone to walk along the road with you. The sun will set you free from whatever is holding you back. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus this morning and basically what your life is, what you're filling up with is this bad diet this, and you have a bad appetite for basically sin, then can I just repeat the same to you? If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. If you want a blessed life, if you want that sort of happiness that you are seeking to pursue and seeking to fulfill in some other thing outside of God, can I just tell you, the Son will set you free. Come to Jesus this morning. Don't let another minute go by. Don't walk out of here not knowing him. Come to Jesus this morning. If you don't know how, come and speak to someone. Speak to someone who sat next to you. If you're settling for something less than what Jesus offers you, you will never know the happiness you are seeking. The author C.S. Lewis wrote this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with sex and drink and ambition And when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are too easily pleased. If you are too easily pleased this morning with the effort of self-generating happiness and trying to maintain it in a world which is broken and bleeding, If the passing happiness the world is so desperately looking for leaves you unfulfilled and you want to change so that you can know true blessedness, choose a better diet, a diet of righteousness. Get a better appetite. Don't nibble and sip. Hunger and thirst. And in so doing, receive a better promise. You will be filled. You will be filled. Let's pray.